But Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? And yet many remain unsubmissive to Him because they have not found that in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the forgiveness of sins, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit to live differently. To live at peace with God. To live at peace with others. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Not live for ourselves, but to live to the glory of God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. An old story tells of a man in Scotland who was walking through a park one day carrying a New Testament in a leather case. Assuming the case um, had a camera within it, a group of young people asked the man if he would take their picture. This was before the day of cell phones, obviously. And the man responded surprisingly with this answer. He said, well, I've already taken your picture. And when the kids asked him how in the world he took their picture without him knowing, he took that leather case, and from that leather case, he took his New Testament Bible, and he read the passage I just read to you, Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And after reading the text, he said, that is a picture of you. And then he began sharing the gospel with these young people. Well, these verses, verses 9 through 20, really culminate to the end of Paul's lengthy argument that all, without distinction, are sinners. And if you look with me, the word but at the beginning of verse 21 marks a transition in Paul's letter to the Romans. Let me give you sort of um, an overall view of the book of Romans. There are several parts. The introduction is chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 17. But then we come into the section known as condemnation where we see the wrath of God revealed. This is chapter 1, verse 18, going all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20. The wrath of God revealed asks the question, is the world lost? And Paul answers, the whole world is guilty, verse 19 of our text, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, verse 20 of our text. And in this whole section, Paul has uh, shown that the pagan Gentiles are condemned, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The Jewish or Gentile moralist is condemned, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. The self-righteous Jew is condemned, chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3 and verse 8. And now as we're going to see this morning in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, the whole world is condemned before God in God's courtroom. That's the first major section of the book of Romans, the condemnation of God, the wrath of God revealed. Now, when we get into chapter 3, verses 21 and following, going all the way to chapter 8 and verse 39, that's the second section of Romans, the salvation section, in which Paul gives to us the righteousness of God revealed. In this section, he asks, how does God save sinners? And the answer is, chapter 8 and verse 1, in 
Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So the whole first part of Romans is about condemnation. The second part then is about salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this section speaks about justification that the believer is declared righteous in Christ. This is chapters 3 through 5. And then sanctification that the believer is made holy in Christ, chapters 6 and 7. And then preservation, or yeah, preservation, we're kept secure in Christ in chapter 8. So condemnation, salvation, and then the third major section has to do with vindication. This is the wisdom of God revealed. It asks, why is ethnic Israel set aside? And Paul answers that all that God may have mercy on all, chapter 11 and verse 32. That's a very important section, and then that leads us into the final main section, and that is the section of exhortation. This is the will of God revealed. How should a person walk? And Paul says in chapter 12 and verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that's Romans in a nutshell. It deals with condemnation, the wrath of God revealed, salvation, the righteousness of God revealed, vindication, the wisdom of God revealed, and exhortation, the will of God revealed. And then Paul concludes all of it in chapter 16 with concluding words. So we are at the end of Paul's first major division, the wrath of God revealed, where Paul is asked, is the world lost? And of course the world is lost. He's exposed the sin of everyone, the pagan Gentile, the moralist, the self-righteous Jew. And so now in verses 9 through 20, he arraigns the entire human race, both Jews and Greeks, verse 9, because together, verse 12 They have become worthless. He arraigns them in the courtroom of God. Now our culture, music, Hollywood, and even politics, insists that man by nature is good. Paul in this passage says, no way. There is none righteous, no, not one, verse 10. There is no one who does good, not even one, verse 12. And in verse 18, he gives the root problem, There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is in contrast to everything you hear in our culture. The ancient Roman philosopher Seneca really had a better grasp on the guilt of man and the sinfulness of man when he said that every guilty person is his own hangman. In other words, it is intrinsic in the mind and the heart of every human being that we deserve the judgment of God, that we are guilty of violating laws that someone outside of us has set down for us to follow. But the indoctrination of people into victimhood in our own culture does not help people, it hurts people. And those in our culture, to quote verse 13, use their tongues to deceive. Instead of driving people to Christ, our culture deceptively drives people to all sorts of things that they say will suppress their guilt. Sex, drugs, victimhood, all peddled by politicians and psychologists and university professors and even big pharma in order to suppress the feeling of guilt. I'll give you one illustration of this. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the supply chain of fentanyl can be traced to Mexico where it is made and also China. They sort of serve as the global drug dealers of our world and they specifically target the United States of America. This fentanyl and fentanyl-related substances are trafficked directly across our borders with India now becoming a recent dealer in the world trade of drugs. 
The year following COVID in 2021 witnessed 106,000 drug overdose deaths, 70,000 of which were connected with fentanyl. And I tell all that to you because there is a parallel. Our overly medicated society wants to tell us that drugs is the solution to make us feel better, to make us function better, to suppress our feelings of guilt. And how much deception crosses the borders of our own souls that tells us, whether in music or Hollywood or whatever, that man by nature is good. That sort of deceptive drug only masks temporarily any feelings of guilt. Opioid crisis or not, we're dealing with a sin crisis. And only Jesus Christ can remove both the reality and the feeling of the guilt of the human race, the guilt that you have in your heart today can only be removed by Christ. So in verses 9 through 20, Paul is giving a sweeping summary of everything that he has said before in Romans. So if you've had difficulty connecting everything Paul has said because he's so nuanced in his argumentation, you've come to the right place because Paul sums it all up here. He presents us as if we have gone to a courtroom arraigned by God, standing before God the judge, before the bench of God. And he uses legal terminology to prove the guilt of mankind before God's tribunal. There are three parts to this courtroom scene. First is the charge in verse 9. Then in verses 10 through 18, the larger section that we're going to look at is the indictment. And then the conclusion is the verdict in verses 19 and 20. I want you to understand this morning that what Paul says about Jews and Gentiles in this passage, what Paul says about the human race is 100% true about your own heart. And if you are unwilling to recognize that, you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. You must be broken by your own sin. You must sense the weight of your own guilt. That you have been brought to court by God. You have been prosecuted. The evidence is overwhelming. And the only thing you deserve and I deserve is the judgment of God. It's a weighty passage. So let's begin with these three scenes. We'll begin with number one, the charge of mankind in verse 9. Paul begins by asking a question. He says, what then? Now, what he's asking is, what does this case mean? The long case that I've presented as an apostle prosecutor. What does this long case mean for us? And Paul answers with another question, are we Jews any better off? Now, if you're using an English Standard Version, which is what I'm preaching from, it uses the word Jews, are we Jews any better off? But that word is really not in the original Greek text. It's supplied because Paul speaks in verse 9 about Jews. And so people assume that Paul is speaking about Jews and they insert that word. But Paul has just spoken about Jews in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. He mentions them later in verse 9. But I don't think that the we of verse 9 is restricted to Jews because Paul has already stated that Jews are not any better off than Gentiles. He did that in chapter 2 already. That was his point. 
And furthermore, Paul has referred to Jews primarily in the third person. He did that in chapter 3 and verse 1. He did it in chapter 1, verse 16. He did it in chapter 2 and verse 9. He does it again in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. He refers to the Jew. And he also uses the second person to refer to the Jew in chapter 2 and verse 17. So I don't think that the Jews are in mind here. That's really a bad translation. So who exactly are the we that Paul is referring to? Well, here's the answer. The we refers to Paul himself and all of the believers in Rome. So in other words, he's asking this important question. Do we as Christians have a better nature than the rest of sinful mankind? In other words, did God save us because our sinful nature is not as bad as others? Now, the end of verse 8, Paul said, if you remember this, that some people slanderously charge us with saying that uh, we should do evil that good may come. That was a charge of antinomianism to Paul and other Christians that because we believe in the gospel of grace, that we don't have to obey the law in the Christian life. And Paul uses that plural pronoun, us, referring to himself, his associates, and any other Christian who believes in the saving gospel that comes by God's sovereign grace. So the we referred to in verse 9, I think, refers to Christians. Are we any better off? Do we somehow have a different nature than all the people that you've talked about that haven't been elected by God? And notice how Paul answers in verse 9. He says, no, not at all. Not in any respect is what Paul's saying. Are we any better off? Are you kidding yourself? The entire human race shows us condemned before God as guilty lawbreakers. That's been Paul's whole point up to this point. So now Paul goes on to explain that all who are arraigned before God's bench bench of judgment will be charged. There are no exceptions. Notice the end of verse 9. For, this is explanatory, we have already charged, there's that word charged, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul says, in effect, I've already prosecuted the case, as it were, and you've already been charged. Now, that is one Greek word that is actually a legal term that literally means to lay a charge against somebody in court. So Paul hasn't just made these random accusations. He is using legal terminology to say this is a proven charge in the court of God. And what is the legally proven charge? He says there in verse 9 that all, both Jews and Greeks, that is Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Now what does it mean to be under sin? Well, it simply means to be under the power of sin. Man is therefore under sin All men, both Jews and Greeks, we could say in four ways. Number one, man is a sinner by nature. It's a state. It's a condition. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, you are not a sinner in in the first place, in the most basic sense, because you commit sinful acts. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. It is a state, and it is a condition. We are under sin in the sense that We are sinners by nature. Number two, we are under sin in the sense that man is a sinner by imputation. In Romans 5.12, Paul says sin came into the world through one man. What did Paul mean by that? Well, he simply meant that Adam, our father in the flesh, had his sin imputed to us, just as the last Adam, our brother 
and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, had His righteousness imputed to the one who believes. In fact, in Romans 5.18, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking about Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, meaning to Jews and Greeks who believe. So we are under sin... Number one, because man is a sinner by nature. Number two, man is a sinner by imputation. Number three, man is a sinner by committing sin. Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then Paul adds that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And this he did to purify for himself a people for his own possession who do lawless deeds and instead will now be zealous for good works. So there are isolated individual acts of sins, lawless deeds that we commit which makes us sinners. We are under sin because we are sinners by nature. It's a stated condition. We are under sin because we're sinners by imputation. Adam's unrighteousness has been imputed to our account. We are under sin because man is a sinner by committing sin. And fourth, man is a sinner because universally, without exception, every last one of us, verse 9, all of us are sinners. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So in this passage, Paul calls sin to the witness stand to give testimony to mankind's guilt as a lawbreaker. And sin says, you are under my power. You are under the weight of my sin. And Paul has provided sufficient mounting evidence to prove man's guilt. He doesn't merely say that all men are sinners, but that all men are under sin. So please understand this. Man does not just commit sinful acts. He's not merely born into sin as if someone's born into poverty and can somehow overcome it by pulling themselves up with their own bootstraps. No, it's far worse. Man is under everything that sin brings with it. Man is under the guilt of sin. Man is under the power of sin. Man is under the condemnation of sin. Man is under the doom of sin. 1 John 5.19, John says that the unredeemed humanity lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus even said in John 12.40 that Satan is the ruler of this world. And before, Paul gave the evidence that we were under sin by arguing with a lengthy diatribe, that imaginary discussion. But now, in one sweeping statement in verse 9, the sinner hears the charge officially in court, and the official charge with one sweeping statement is that all are sinners. Now, we're going to see in verses 10, that Scripture itself is going to testify against us, and it's going to testify in those four ways that I just mentioned. First of all, Scripture is going to testify that man is sinful by nature. Just look at verse 12, skip ahead for a moment. It says, no one does good, not even one. That is to say, man is sinful by nature. Secondly, Scripture testifies that man is sinful by imputation. Notice verse 10, none is righteous, which means he has the imputed unrighteousness of the first Adam marking him. He's branded a sinner. The third scripture testifies that man is a sinner by committing sin. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Man runs hard after a whole list of sins. And four, scripture testifies that man is a sinner universally. Down to the last one, verse 12, all have turned aside. 
But it's actually worse than that. Because man is like a criminal standing to hear the charge of his guilt as if he doesn't even care. Because notice verse 18, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Unfazed, apart from the work of the Spirit, man will sometimes even embrace his guilt, justify his guilt, suppress his guilt, because there is no fear of God. There is no fear of sin. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, was threatened with death one time by the empress Eudoxia, and John Chrysostom sent word to her saying, Go tell her, I fear nothing but sin. Do you fear sin this morning? Because I want to tell you, verse 9 says you're under sin. By nature, you are a sinner. By nature, you have embraced your sin. By nature, you are incapable of being anything other than a sinner. And because of that, you stand apart from Christ, condemned under His law. That is the charge. It is a proven charge in the court of God's law. This is not accusation. This is not a false charge. The evidence has mounted, and nobody in the courtroom can deny the charge is valid. But... We move to the second part of the court scene. We move from the charge, number two, to the indictment. The indictment, verses 10 through 18. Next in the order of God's judicial procedure is the indictment. Now, if you're familiar with court terminology, an indictment is a carefully crafted, written record of crimes, counts of crimes that are read out loud for all to hear. And the purpose of the indictment is to list the counts against the criminal. So going back to my illustration at the very beginning of the sermon, this is a picture of you. This is a picture of me. All of these counts of indictment in verses 10 through 18. And Paul is following the common rabbinical practice of stringing passages together like pearls. Paul strings Old Testament passages together like an expert lawyer. It's carefully constructed. It's not pieced together ad hoc. Most of the scriptures are taken from either the Psalms, uh, the book of of Ecclesiastes, or Isaiah. And the quotations are not ad verbum. That means they're not always literal. They're ad sensum. That means they're according to meaning. In other words, Paul is sort of interpreting the Old Testament verses as he gives his own paraphrase, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is why sometimes you don't see an exact correspondence to a particular Old Testament verse. He's taking the idea. Another thing that Paul is doing is he is quoting the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and sometimes Paul will quote from the Hebrew, sometimes he'll quote from the Old Testament written in Greek, the Greek Septuagint. New Testament authors often adapted Old Testament passages, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to crystallize their meaning for New Covenant Christians. And you need to remember that the practice of precise citation was not around in antiquity. When I worked on my doctorate, the biggest thing that I worked on was collecting sources and reading those sources and documenting those sources. And I can't even tell you how many citations were in my final thesis because I wanted to prove my argument by citing authority. In ancient times, people usually didn't cite people. Now Paul does cite God's word as authoritative and we're going to see that But I want you to look at this written indictment in verses 10 through 18 carefully because Paul has arranged it in three strophes 
or three stanzas. The first stanza is the second half of verse 10 going through verse 12. The second stanza is verses 13 and 14. And the third stanza is verses 15 through 18. And Paul begins by making it clear that this indictment comes from the source of the Bible. So Paul cites one source. Notice verse 10. As it is written. This is a common formula used in Scripture. Jesus used it often to say that what I'm getting ready to say comes from the authority of God. It is written. Paul is basing his entire argument on the Scriptures, which means this is the best and most well-written court document that has ever existed because it comes from the authority of God. Many of you remember our brother in Christ, Ron Town. He was a member of this church. He's now passed away and is with the Lord. Ron spent his career as an attorney in Cleveland. And every week, I used to meet with Ron three or four hours, I think it was every Tuesday at Dunkin' Donuts, and we would talk about politics, we would talk about sports, Uh, we both had a love for the Cleveland Browns, and we would talk about how sad it was that our favorite team was good at losing, but we would also talk about deeper matters of theology. And inevitably, Ron would tell stories of high-profile cases that he conducted as a defense attorney. And Ron was a master in the courtroom. And we often spoke about the parallel between lawyers and preachers because like lawyers, preachers must be able to get the case down to the bare facts. Attorneys, like preachers, exhaust every argument, leaving no stone unturned, and at the same time have to be clear in in bringing this thing to a conclusion because a verdict has to be rendered. For an attorney in the courts on earth... For a preacher, the courts of heaven. And like an attorney, Paul is exhaustive. He's determined and so nuanced in his arguments with so many different layers that it can be hard to follow. But he's also like a lawyer in the sense that he comes to the point where he rests his case. Let me just say on a side note, one of the great problems with preaching today, in my estimation, is that it's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. It leaves the listener feeling as if They've not heard anything fresh or anything new. But equally troubling, I think, are preachers who preach in the name of quote-unquote depth but are so detailed that their people miss the big picture, the big argument of what Paul is making. And the preacher takes people down so many rabbit trails, they've forgotten even where they were going. Well, this is Paul's moment to rest his case, to cut to the chase. His simple point in the indictment is that all men, listen to this, are so guilty that there's not a defense attorney in the entire world who would be mankind's lawyer. That's his point. In fact, verse 19, it's so bad, Paul says at the end of verse 19, that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. There is no defense. No one's willing to come to the defense of someone so guilty against God's law. Now let's look at these three stanzas which comprise Paul's counts of indictment. We can categorize them as depravity seen in destitution, number one. Secondly, deception. And third, destruction. I told you there were three stanzas or three verses. The first one is the stanza that tells us about our destitution. Second half of verse 10 going through verse 12. Notice the first count of indictment. Paul says there is none who is righteous, verse 10, no, not one. This is probably taken from Psalm chapter 14. Paul's point is that that the standard is God's righteousness. And when man is judged, 
That standard doesn't change. Nobody, Paul says, no, not one meets that standard. I could quote Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Scientists one time years ago spent some $10,000 and hours of research to come up with a straight ruler. And after spending $10,000, it still wasn't straight. Paul is saying there's no one who is straight. There's no one who has walked perfectly the straight and narrow. There is none righteous, no, not one. My dad taught me how to evangelize the lost. And I used to love going with him to visit people, to share the gospel, because I knew that dad was going to ask this question. He was going to ask the person, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven, what would your response be? Well, inevitably, I knew the answer would be something like, well, I've given money to the poor, I've I've tried to live a good life. And dad would, would then put some sort of object in his hand. Whatever was laying around, he would say that this hand represents the sinner, and he would place an object in it. And he would say, that object represents all your sin. Every sin you've ever committed that is piled up. And the person would say, well, maybe at the end of time, God will weigh my good and my bad in a scale. And dad would say, yeah, but the problem is, you still have the guilt of sin. The guilt needs to be removed and only Christ can do that. And he would take his other hand and he would say, this hand represents Christ. And Christ would pick up that sin and put it on himself. And now the sin would not be on the sinner. He would quote 2 Corinthians 5.21, which said that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great illustration, but of course, God doesn't just remove our sin and place it on Christ. He removes our guilt. We're not naked hands before him. The illustration would be better if he put a glove on his hand to represent the righteousness of Christ that covers the sinner. And we are in desperate need of Christ's righteousness because apart from it, we are destitute. There is none who are righteous, Paul says. No, not even one. Now notice the second count. Paul says, left to ourselves, verse 11, no one understands. That is, even depravity affects our minds. Psalm 14 says the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees, are there any who understands? And there, there aren't any who understands. In fact, there's no one that even seeks God. And that's the third count of indictment in verse 11. No one seeks for God. I mean, it's not as if, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, that God is playing hide and seek. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in conscience. God has revealed himself in special revelation. The problem is man is blind and man is brain dead. He won't seek God because he doesn't know how. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot even understand them. And it's not that he's physically brain dead. All sinners have the mental capacity to believe and understand. But it's that they're brain dead spiritually. Apart from the Spirit of God giving them a new heart. But they're physically capable. It's not that they can't seek God. It's that they won't seek God. They physically could do it, but they won't. Because depravity has so marked them that as Paul says here, none seeks after God. Ephesians 4.18 says that sinful man is darkened in his understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him, because of the hardness of his heart. And all the while, creation and conscience tells him 
He knows enough that God exists, but he refuses to come to God. Why? Because he doesn't want to be held accountable to his sin and because of his sin. So what does he do? He denies that God exists. And Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. He covers his eyes like a child playing hide and seek, thinking that if he just covers his eyes, God can't see him and see his sin. One Sunday several years ago in a different pastorate, I preached on Revelation 3 verse 20. You're familiar with it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Well, I preach that verse as it is in its context. Those are words written to the church. So many people misinterpret that and say that it is God knocking on the door of your heart and he's just waiting for you to open that door. Well, the next Sunday I was out of town for a vacation and one gentleman who was a guest speaker who came in to preach for me had obviously listened to my sermon the week before and he preached the same exact text, but this time not from the Calvinistic angle, but from the Arminian angle. And he said, behold, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's waiting for you to open the door. Well, the congregation was not happy about that, and rightly so, because they knew they were being lied to. God is the seeker, not the sinner. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That man never spoke again. And that incident, I think, illustrates well the power of truth and also the power of deception. How many people do you know are deceived into thinking that they were the ones who sought God? Let me just say this. If that's what you think, you're on your way to hell. You're still in your sins. You've not understood the gospel properly. And this is why choosing a church based on the preaching and the theology is critically important. It doesn't mean you're going to understand everything. I don't expect that. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with me on everything. I certainly don't expect that. If you can prove a better way, fine, show it to me. But you choose a church based on the depth of the preaching. And you choose to stay in a church based on that. That is the high water mark. Because Preachers who preach the depth of God's word are not going to leave any stone unturned. They're going to tell you the truth. And the truth is what you need to hear. Now, counts 4, 5, and 6 is summarized in verse 12. This is taken from Psalm 14, 3 and Psalm 53, 4. Notice verse 12. Paul says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The fourth count of indictment, there at the beginning of verse 12, All have turned aside. I mean, this is like saying that man's navigational system is busted. You've gotten off the right route, you're going the wrong way, and you're on the highway to hell. You've turned aside. And maybe we could say this is more, in reality, kind of like a husband who purposely goes the wrong way just to spite his wife because he doesn't want to hear from her where to go. Because by nature, man doesn't want to be told what to do But we can add to that the problem that the wife or the woman doesn't care either because that is exactly what Eve did. She convinced Adam to turn the wrong way. And where did that lead him? Where did it lead us? It led us in a detour into another world, a world of sin. We've all turned aside. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. It's only Jesus who can recalculate our navigational system. How does he do that? Well, he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. There is not salvation in other religions. 
There is not salvation in other cults. There, there is not salvation in whatever you think will please God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the, and the life. And if you think otherwise, let me quote to you Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but whose end is destruction. We've all turned aside. Notice the fifth count of indictment. Together, verse 12, they have become worthless. Wow. Some translations say useless. The Hebrew equivalent of that Greek word worthless or useless can actually refer to spoiled fruit. And so we could say that Adam was the one bad apple that spoiled the whole bunch. But it wasn't because Adam started out corrupt. He became ripe for temptation through his own choices and spoiled the rest of us and we followed him willingly to do that. We have become like spoiled fruit, worthless and useless just to be thrown out. Notice the sixth count against us, the middle of verse 12. No one does good, Paul says, not even one. Now this is not a denial that there aren't single acts of goodness or isolated incidents where even pagans can do good deeds. Calvin affirmed this, and Calvin, of course, is the Calvinist of all Calvinists, and Calvin said that even pagans can do isolated acts of goodness. And I know a lot of unbelievers in the world who do a lot of good things. Sometimes they do more good things than people in the church, I'll tell you that, which is an indictment on the church. But what Paul is saying here when he says no one does good, not even one, is he's saying that as a course of life goes, listen to this, nobody is intrinsically good. That's the point. Nobody. So so what if you do isolated acts of goodness? The, the, the whole viewpoint of your life cannot be marked by intrinsic goodness. It's not intrinsically good, it's intrinsically bad. No one does good Paul says, not even one. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, even after our conversion, there is a pound of flesh in everything that we do. Everything that we do is tainted with sin. It's polluted with sin in some form or fashion, even our most righteous and good acts. That's why the Bible says that your righteousness, even your righteousness is as filthy rags. This is our destitution. Our depravity tells us that we are destitute. But it gets worse. The indictments against mankind keep racking up. Paul moves from stanza 1, destitution, to stanza 2, and that is deception. Verses 13 and 14, Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, selects the sinfulness of the mouth to highlight depravity and the guilt of man. You say, why would he pick sins of the mouth? Well, maybe because of Proverbs 15, 18, that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, right? That's what Jesus said. So Paul uses sins of the mouth, things that we think can't hurt others. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie I've ever heard. Words can kill people and hurt people and destroy people. And so Paul uses the sin of the mouth as a means to highlight the depth of our depravity. And he focuses on the deception of the mouth. Notice the seventh count of indictment. Their throat is an open grave. This is probably quoted from Psalm 5, which describes the throat as the mechanism man uses to speak sinfully. It's like an open grave. This could refer to the deadliness of man's words to others, that he opens his mouth to speak evil and murderous words, and therefore his mouth is like an open grave that's ready to swallow up others. Luther sort of had that interpretation, and Calvin as well. I could be wrong, but I prefer to understand this to mean that a wide open mouth, 
lets out words that are so wicked that a foul mouth gives forth a stench like a decaying body, like an open grave does. You remember Jesus used this metaphor, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 23, he said to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And they were the kings of deception. They were professional speakers who taught bad theology and who lied and who deceived and didn't tell the truth. One of my friends from college, his, his name is Yuri, and he is from Brazil. And uh, Yuri grew up uh, in a Christian home. His father was a pastor. And in Brazil, when the pastor conducted the funeral, the pastor actually also dug the grave. That sounds sort of strange for us in the United States, although they do do that in eastern Kentucky in certain parts of Appalachia. But on this one occasion, Yuri was watching his father preach this funeral, and at the end of the funeral, his father, with all of his strength, went to push the body into the hole. But as he did it, he tripped. And Yuri's father fell directly on the stomach of this man who had passed. And Yuri's dad said that a breath of air came up out of his mouth and directly into his nostrils from the dead man. And it was said, Yuri said, his dad never got that stench out of his nostrils. The stench of death. You know, James 3.6 describes the tongue as a world of unrighteousness. Set among our members, staining the whole body. One of the ways our own lives are stained before the world is when we use our mouths in sinful ways, like an open grave. Or in that James passage, uh, James could also be referring to the body of Christ. The body of Christ stains herself through slander and gossip toward one another. This is the depth of depravity. Did even believers engage in that? It ought not to be, but it is. And Paul points that out. Notice the eighth count against us, verse 13. They use their tongues to deceive. Now that word deceive is better translated, they keep deceiving. It's from the root Greek word daliao, which was used to describe a baited hook with food that would lure a fish. So we would call this deceptive sort of manipulation, the use of the tongue to deceive, we would call that flattery. Psalm 5.9 calls it exactly that. It says, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. What is flattery? Well, a flatterer uses and abuses others in the interest of self. That's what a flatterer is. If you want sort of a description of the sinfulness and the wickedness of the mouth, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 9, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slander. Now that's pretty amazing. He says, not only your neighbor, those on the outside you have to look out for, but those on the inside of the church, your brother. Everyone who deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth, they've taught their tongue to speak lies. They've taught their tongue. That means they're master manipulators and flatterers. They weary themselves committing iniquity. I mean, they just wear themselves out falling over people to flatter them with smooth talk. Why? To get what they want. That's why. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received before I went to my first pastor, I was barely 24 years old, and so a good minister came to me and he said, look, let me just give you a piece of advice. He said, when you go to preach in view of a call to this church, mark out the person who is the nicest to you. 
And he said, nine times out of ten, the person that is the nicest to you will be the first one to stab you in the back. Well, I'm just a young kid. What, a, what does this guy know? So I go to my first pastorate, and I remember, Corey probably remembers this, it was snowing. There was like a foot and a half of snow on the ground when I preached in view of a call, and I was staying at the home of the, the, the head of the search committee, the chairman of the search committee. He was the, the church boss, basically, and he taught Sunday school. And I went out Sunday morning to warm my car up, and my locks were frozen. So I went in, his name was Denzel, and Denzel got a hair dryer, and we go out to the driveway, and he's got his hair dryer, we're trying to you know, melt the ice to break through, and at one point he turn, turned the hair dryer off, and he looked at me, and he said, you know I'm just doing this to be nice to you. And it was like a flag went off in my head. That guy must have been a prophet who said this. And it wasn't six to eight months later that Denzel was the first person to stab me in the back. Because nine times out of ten, those who flatter, they want something from you. So don't be on the receiving end of that smooth talk. And definitely don't be on the giving end. Notice the ninth count. We're all the way up to nine counts of indictment. The end of verse 13, the venom of asps is under their lips. The venom of asps. That was a snake. This is taken from Psalm 140 verse 3. So what Paul is saying is that the words of flatterers is like the venom sacks hidden under the lips at the base of the fangs of an asp or a viper. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you are a brood of what? Vipers. Why? Because they were deceiving people. They were flatterers. They were telling people you could get into the kingdom by being like us, by dressing like us and looking like us and doing all of these religious things. They were flatterers. Flatterers are snakes in the grass, is what Paul's saying. Behind their Flattering lips are poisonous fangs ready to inject venom. How many of you today will admit that we live in a society that uses the weaponization of the mouth? I mean, when a man who is intelligent and articulate and has the facts and he's at a hearing on censorship is censored during the censorship hearing from saying what needs to be said to the American public. And how did they do that? Well, you hate Jews. You're anti-Semitic. Lie, not true. Lies, deception, to shut people up. The weaponization of the mouth to get you to be quiet, to bully others with your mouth, to flatter others to get what you want. That is the depth of human depravity. Because there's no integrity in that. Notice the 10th count of indictment, verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses refers to open criticism of others. Bitterness is sort of the hostility of the heart toward others. Now let me just say this. You can have a mouth full of food and never show it. My kids do that all the time. They put food in their mouth over and over and over again. And it's so full I think that they're going to choke and I get scared. You can have a mouth full of food and never show the food. And you can have a heart full of curses and bitterness and no words actually spew out. And that's really what Paul's talking about. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It, it may not come out all the time, but it's there. It's lying dormant. And that is why we must always guard our hearts. We must always be forgiving. We must always watch our words that we're not too critical because our mouths are full of 
of curses and bitterness even when words aren't spewed out. A man challenged Pastor J. Vernon McGee one time that verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, wasn't true. And J. Vernon McGee said, okay, after church, I want us both to walk down the sidewalk and around the corner. And the first person you see, punch them in the mouth and then see what comes out of that mouth. (laughs) Inevitably, if we are pushed, curses and bitterness will come out. So you see, Paul is portraying God here as like a physician, a physician of souls, and we've gone to God for an appointment. Well, what's the first thing that a doctor does at an appointment? Well, he checks our mouths with that popsicle stick. He smashes our gums or our tongue down. He looks inside, and when we say, ah, what does God see? Sin, corruption. What does God smell? A foul mouth of curses and bitterness. A mouth of deception, flattery, slander. You know, when Adam was confronted by God, he blamed God. It was that woman you gave me. That was an indirect assault against God. That was slander against God. And he was throwing his wife under the bus. He should have been man enough to say, it it was my fault. Yet she did it, but it was my fault. He didn't do it. He sinned with his mouth. After he committed transgression, that's always what we want to do, right? We want to justify our sin. That's the depth of the human heart. So three stanzas of indictment. Depravity is marked by destitution. It's marked by deception. It's also marked by destruction. Notice verses 15 through 18. The 11th count of indictment, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Um, I think this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 59. If you take your Bibles and turn back there just just briefly, we won't be there long. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah says about the evil who oppress others. He says in verse 7, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Paul says, quoting Isaiah, sort of abbreviated way, mankind is marked by feet that are swift to shed blood. Just like nations who are quick to war instead of peace, Paul is saying man is quick to look for fights. Rooted in jealousy, arrogance, discontentedness, whatever it may be, these are Feet that are swift to shed blood. Growing up in a Christian home, my dad had several rules in the house. His primary rule was no lying. If you were caught lying, you did not want to face my dad. I can just tell you that right now. You did not want to face my dad. I have a rule in my house. The thing that bothers me more than anything is arguing and fighting. That is the number one rule in my house. No arguing, no fighting. We are a family. Debating is fine. Arguing, unacceptable. Because what does arguing lead to? It leads to hostilities. It leads to war. Where where feet are swift to shed blood because I have an agenda. Get out of my way. I'll knock whoever over I need to to get to it. That is the depth of human depravity. Notice the twelfth count of indictment. In their paths are ruin and misery, verse 16. In other words, wherever you walk, Paul's saying, wherever you go, you cannot escape the absolute wreckage of people's lives. 
ruin and misery. That's why I try to tell young people all the time, whether it's my my own kids or other kids, life is full of choices. Choices have consequences, so make right choices. But Paul says here, every choice a sinner apart from Christ makes leads to destruction and ruin. There's always consequences for sin. Temporal consequences and eternal. I mean, man is like a a bull in a china shop knocking everything down sloppily, running down the road, falling over the path of destruction, the highway to hell. Notice the 13th count of indictment. And the way of peace they have not known. Verse 17. We don't have peace with God and we don't have peace with others. The first table of the law is vertical peace. We don't have that because we violated the first table of the law. We've said the Lord's name in vain. We've had idols and graven images before us. We've not honored the Sabbath to keep it holy, etc. And we violated the second table of the law and we are at war, not peace with others. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we covet. All of those things. But Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? And yet many remain unsubmissive to Him because they have not found that in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the forgiveness of sins, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit to live differently. To live at peace with God. To live at peace with others. To love our neighbor as ourselves. To not live for ourselves but to live to the glory of God. Paul's point is that man doesn't do that apart from the gospel. Now we're all the way up to the 14th count of indictment. 14 counts. Verse 18. This sums it all up. There is, Paul says, no fear of God before their eyes. Sums it up. Proverbs says the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Psalm 36, 1 says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is quoting Psalm 36. Man believes the lie that what others think is more important than what God thinks, so they compromise their morals. Dear friends, if these 14 counts is like looking at yourself in the mirror, that is because that's exactly what it is. It is a mirror into our own souls. Apart from Christ, we're in God's courtroom. The counts of sin and this written indictment carefully crafted with sufficient evidence is incriminating, and it is beyond incriminating. And if it doesn't make you sweat, then that means there is an absence of fear. There's no fear of God before your eyes, and an absence of fear means an absence of God in your life. I've been a Christian most of my life, and there's not one day I live where I don't fear God. I am scared to death of the power of God in my life. And with all the responsibilities that I have, I screw this up, how many lives does it affect? That frightens me. Not to the point of being paralyzed because I run to Christ, but it frightens me to the point that I'm held accountable. Now let me just stop for a minute to say there is hope for the Christian and this part of the courtroom trial is when your defense attorney comes in. This is when Jesus stands up and he says, I understand everything you said. Everything you said is true, but I died for him. I died for her. 
and we are declared not guilty. But Paul is speaking about the sinner apart from Christ, right? He's speaking about the sinner apart from Christ and there is no defense attorney in his right mind that would ever take this case. So we move in this scene of God's courtroom from the charge and the indictment now to the verdict. Verses 19 and 20. Notice verse 19. This is so simple. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? It's the same people who are under sin. The Jew is under God's written law given to him by Moses, which was given to him by God on Mount Sinai. Paul has said that. And the Gentile is under the law, written on his heart, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So, Paul is saying, the creator of the universe, the judge of all the earth, Genesis 18, 25, stands in authority over everyone in the universe. This is the collection of the human race standing before God as one. And everyone in the universe is guilty. So guilty, in fact, that there is no defense even attempted. Notice the end of verse 19. Every mouth will be stopped so that the whole world may be accountable to God. The criminal doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't know what to say. The defense attorney sits, closes his folder and says, there's complete universal silence. And the reason is because of verse 20. Notice your Bibles. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let me just sum that up for you very simply. Nobody achieves salvation through law keeping. Man's sinful state renders him incapable. But the verse does say that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that is the reason we are guilty. God's law has shown us we are sinners. When you share Christ with others, you must tell them that they are sinners. You must show them they have violated God's law. If you don't do that, you have not witnessed to them about the gospel. It's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin so that we see that we are sinners so we confess our sin and seek forgiveness in Christ. Just peek ahead to verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So apart from the law, because of Jesus, salvation is possible. But by the works of the law, verse 20, there's only the sentence of death and condemnation and judgment. So this is the first major section of Romans. It's simple to understand. He's talking about mine and yours condemnation. Is the whole world guilty before God? Are you kidding me? Every person down to the last one, there's no, good, no one good, not even one. There is none righteous. And now you're ready to receive the gospel. Because now you know that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. But perhaps as we close this morning, we'll talk about the gospel next week. Maybe I could give you three practical bonus points. This kind of brings the long discussion of sin to a close. Number one, Before judging others too harshly, remember that you stand in guilt before God as well. We should cover our mouths and not use them as weapons, accusing others. Christians need to be humble people. And I think this passage teaches us that. Number two, 
The scriptures tell the truth. They tell the truth all the time and every time. It is impossible for God to lie. So what he says here about sinners is true for all sinners, you and me. What he says about believers in 321 and following is true about all believers. Again, humility. Number three, although true believers are not to use the law as a means of salvation, sanctification is measured by obedience to the law. The standard of God's law doesn't change just because you are a believer. So we are not antinomian. We are not against God's law. That is why we read God's law every Lord's Day. We remind ourselves of who we aren't so we can see who we are in Christ. We remind ourselves of what God's standards are so that we can pursue them, so that we can be more holy, so we can be a better witness for Christ. Because once we stood in condemnation, but now we've been justified. We're standing in the salvation of God. We're standing in Jesus Christ and we want to give everything about our lives to Him. And that's not just what you do when you come to church. That's with your family. That's at the workplace. That's in the community. It is the comprehensive package of living your life quorum Deo before the presence of God Almighty. Well, may God add His blessing to us. Now we know we are sinners. Paul has spent the better part of three chapters with this bad news. Now, I'm happy to report that next week we begin the good news. And it's a lot of good news. Praise the Lord. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.